Living in Houston, I've driven on I-45 countless times. Just the other day, while driving to the woodlands, I realized this was the same I-45 where so many young women and girls had disappeared. It was a surreal moment, almost deja vu-like, when my brain finally connected the research I've done over the past few months on the killing fields in I-45 with the highway I drive so often. I-45 is just like any major highway in the United States, most similar in my experience to I-95 in Miami. Both are seemingly under non-stop construction and filled with reckless drivers. I-45 is a road I mostly try to avoid, not for its connection to the killing fields, but to its connection with highway fatalities. Remember how Texas likes to be the best, but often comes in second? Turns out, not even considering serial killers, that I-45 is the second deadliest highway in the United States, following the California 99. From 2011 to 2015, I-45 had nearly 60 fatal accidents per 100 miles, with the most dangerous stretch, of course, being Houston. I-45 also earned top rankings for both nighttime-related crashes and DUI-related crashes. Texas highways are fatal. If a negligent driver doesn't get you, a serial killer might. Whatever you do, don't break down on I-45 after dark. Welcome to Creep. I'm Elizabeth, and this is the second part of a multi-part special exploring the unsolved mystery of the Texas killing fields. I hope you'll continue to join me as we talk about the suspects, the crimes, and the mysterious links connecting these cases. I-45 seems like any major American highway. Insane rush hour traffic, billboards, advertising, sex shops, hotels, buckies, and all of the best fast food chains. Crumpled car bumpers, torn mattresses, smashed furniture, and sometimes the occasional jaywalker can be seen along the medians and shoulders. Just the other day, I watched a pedestrian try his luck crossing I-45. He was successful this time. Perhaps it was something he'd done many times before, but still, I wondered, how easy might it be to misjudge cars driving at 90 miles per hour? Sure, I-45 may seem like a normal, everyday American superhighway running from Dallas in the north all the way to Galveston Island, passing through the major city of Houston, but as we know, looks can be deceiving. I-45 also has a dark affinity for attracting serial killers, earning its nickname as Highway to Hell. Since the 70s, more than 30 young women and girls have gone missing, or their bodies discovered along the Highway to Hell. It took a long time for the police to connect the killings to a larger pattern, with many of the murders spanning decades, crossing multiple precincts, and often having very different M.O.s. Keep in mind that Houston alone also has 200 unsolved murders of females. It's impossible for the I-45 killings to be the work of one serial killer. 
Multiple factors show that several serial killers used I-45 to hunt their prey from 1970 to the early 2000s, including at least three men currently in prison for one or more of the murders. One serial killer operating along I-45 is terrifying enough, but more than one? It's nearly impossible to comprehend. Is there a connection? If so, what? What is it about I-45 that attracts psychopaths? It's also important to note that the area referred to as the killing fields has several clusters or groups of victims, all kidnapped or murdered in the same time frame or in a similar way, with little evidence of copycat killings. Instead, it is clear that several independent serial killers all operated within close proximity and each had their own unique style of murder. These clusters might include similarities like being in close proximity, similar kidnap murder style, or happening in the same time frame. I'll be honest, when I first started my research on the Texas killing fields, I thought it'd be simple. After all, there are confessions by men serving time in prison accounting for many of the crimes. As of 2006, it seems as though the killings have stopped, which means the most recent active serial killer has either moved, died, or is currently in prison as well. It seemed like an open and shut story, especially considering one of the confessed killers had so much information about the victims, it's highly likely he's being honest. Yet, as with all roads in Texas, the road to the killing fields winds to places you wouldn't expect, including to a man set to soon be executed for the 1998 murder of 18-year-old college student Melissa Trotter. Larry Swearingen doesn't have his own Wikipedia page. He's a nobody, a white man convicted of murdering a young white college girl prosecutors say he had a crush on. He's not one to make the headlines. Sure, it was a shocking murder, but all murderers are. By all accounts, it was a stereotypical man killing the woman that refuses his advances. The fear that all women have had at some point in our lives. When we're out on a date with someone new, or someone chats us up in the frozen food aisle. It's not to say that all men, or even most men, are violent murderers, but for women, our biggest chance of being murdered is by a stilted romantic partner. So no matter how we may smile or flirt, there's always a voice in the back of our minds warning us of potential dangers. Like many on death row, Larry Swearingen claims he's innocent. The assistant DA would disagree, saying that Mr. Swearingen is probably the most guilty person in the history of Montgomery County when it comes to capital murder. Also, like many on death row, Larry isn't exactly the picture of an upstanding citizen. After all, upstanding citizens are rarely accused and convicted of capital murder and deemed guilty enough to deserve a trip to the Texas execution chambers. Larry has a track record of run-ins with the law, though nothing too serious is officially on his record. Unofficially, however, the line of women willing to testify to his unsavory character and violent behavior was long. His first wife, Michelle Katz, claimed he once raped her at knife point. A stripper from Florida, Cecilia Castellanos, said he tied her up, bathed her, and then made her dress up in something pretty before raping her. A former girlfriend, Laura Meyer, said he once handcuffed and raped her, then drove her around a forest at gunpoint. The same forest where the body of 18-year-old Melissa Trotter 
would be soon discovered. Swearingen had displayed a pattern of bad behavior, woeing young women into relationships with his charm, then using them as he pleased. But what would happen if one of these women resisted a bit too hard for Swearingen's taste? Prosecutors in the Trotter case had a pretty good idea of exactly the consequence of resisting Swearingen's charms. Murder. If you said no and fought back a little too hard, well, Swearingen had a penchant for the forest and knew exactly the right place to hide a body. Swearingen himself admits he's not a good person. He has violent tendencies and a long history of disturbing behavior against women. It's clear that Swearingen is a violent rapist, but does that automatically make him a murderer? The police and prosecution team believed it did, and they apprehended Swearingen before he was able to kill Gen. So quickly, in fact, his victim might not have even been murdered yet. You won't find Melissa Trotter on the Wikipedia page for the Texas Killing Fields or the I-45 murders, even though her body was found just off of I-45 in Montgomery County, only 15 miles from the Huntsville unit. Remember the Huntsville unit, where the most dangerous of Texas criminals in the Texas death row is housed? That's because she isn't considered one of the victims, not officially anyways. Even though she was found along I-45, partially naked and strangled in a similar fashion to several other victims along I-45, the case is different because Trotter isn't a statistic of a serial killer. Her killer only killed one person. Her. Larry Swearingen was also caught. A small town in Texas could now rest easy. There was no predator out to get their daughters any longer. He was sitting in prison, waiting to be tried for his crime. Prosecution was eager to get the case closed and out of their way. Swearingen was an obvious suspect, a 27-year-old unemployed electrician with a record seen chatting up the victim all around town. At one point, they'd been seen talking for over two hours, no doubt flirting as I can't imagine what Swearingen and the college-age trotter had in common. Swearingen also wasn't exactly forthcoming about his encounters with the young beauty. He was, after all, married with a family. The relationship was sexual, though, according to Swearingen, but not serious. They were keeping things casual. Trotter had her other beaux around town and school, and so did Swearingen. For them, it was just about the sex. When Trotter disappeared on December 8, 1998, Swearingen immediately became the prime suspect. Along with reports of the two being spotted together, police also found his name and number written on a piece of paper in the address book found in her college room. Only three days after she disappeared, police arrested Swearingen, and although it was on unrelated traffic violations, his bail was set unusually high. Police already had their eye on Swearingen for Trotter's kidnapping. In their eyes, he was guilty, no matter what the evidence might say. They just needed him to confess to what he'd done to the young girl, and where they could find her remains. Trotter's body wasn't discovered until January 2, 1999, 25 days after she had vanished without a trace. I can imagine it was a dim holiday season for her family, filled with worry and despair, hoping she'd show up on Christmas Eve with a good reason for her disappearance. 
Perhaps she'd been overwhelmed with college life and ran off to start a new one with a boyfriend, the pressure of adulting simply too much. It wouldn't have been surprising, as Trotter's private life was much different than how she portrayed herself to her family. Her mom said her daughter was a proud Christian woman and wasn't embarrassed to carry her Bible with her everywhere she went. She was a cheerleader who sang at her church's choir, a good girl in her family's eyes. At college, Trotter pursued casual sexual relationships, including allegedly sleeping with Swearingen, a married man. One of her friends, 16-year-old Jamie Irvin, said that Trotter goes to parties a lot and she loves having sex. She has slept with at least 18 people. She calls all the time so her mom and dad won't think or find out who she is, so she will call to cover her butt. Instead, Trotter's family rang in the new year with the discovery of the young girl's body found by hunters in the Sam Houston National Forest. Her jeans were ripped, her shirt pulled up, and her face slightly damaged by what was later determined to be animals. The pantyhose used to strangle her still looped around her neck. It was a disturbing discovery, to be sure, but for being missing for nearly a month, the body was less decayed than was expected. Those who discovered her initially thought it might be a mannequin. Decay had barely begun to set in, and with the woods teeming with wild hogs and other scavengers, it was a surprise her body was still so intact. Nine forensic experts agreed that Trotter had been dumped in the woods sometime between two days and 14 days before her body was discovered, with most estimating it had been closer to two to three days of exposure. Yet, the medical examiner, Joy Carter, told the jury that she believed Trotter was killed the day she disappeared. December 8th, based on the appearance of the corpse during the autopsy. She did not tell the jury she'd been able to cut tissue samples from Trotter's pancreas, spleen, heart, liver, lungs, and even brain. Even in fairly cool conditions, the pancreas and spleen will liquefy in two to three days, making it impossible to cut away tissue. This would have thrown a major wrench in the prosecution's case, because if Trotter had only been killed a couple of days before, it wouldn't mean they had the wrong guy. Swearingen, remember, had been in prison this entire time, arrested and held only three days after Trotter disappeared. He'd been locked away for 21 days before the body was discovered. Even at the most liberal of estimates by forensic experts 14 days, there's still a window of a week Swearingen was behind bars. In most cases, being locked away when a murder was committed should preclude you from being considered a suspect. The DA should realize they have no case, their man was under their supervision 24-7 after all, and unless he'd managed to slip out, murder a woman he'd kept locked away someplace, and slip back into his cell, it was impossible for him to have committed the crime. This wouldn't be the case, however, the police and prosecutors were convinced of his guilt, deciding that Swearingen had in fact killed Trotter and solicited the help of an accomplice to dump her body after he was in jail. It would be, after all, a perfect alibi. It didn't matter the five W's, who, what, why, when, and how, they had their who. That was all that mattered. Forensic evidence be damned. Even with prosecution insisting that Swearingen had help dumping the body of Trotter along I-45, their theory of why he committed the crime was also fairly inaccurate, if you actually looked at the forensics. 
They surmised Swearingen had made advances toward the young trotter, which were rejected. After all, according to the victim's own mother, she was a proud, Bible-carrying Christian, not one to be messing around with a married man. Instead, the prosecution decided Swearingen was sweet on a nice, innocent girl, then became enraged when she refused his advances, raping and murdering her. It fit the story the prosecution had carefully crafted, painting Swearingen not only as a rapist through the testimony of so many women, but also as someone who was one rejection away from murder. The women he had only raped, after all, should count their lucky stars. They were still breathing. But there is no forensic evidence showing that Trotter had been violently raped. A rape kit was performed as is standard, but... There was no defensive wounds, no trauma, no semen, no anything besides ripped pants, which could have been the work of animals. But if the crime wasn't sexually motivated, as the police and prosecution claimed, why else was Trotter dead? Young women are rarely just murdered. It's just not how things are. Then there's the DNA evidence. The victim's clothes were never tested for DNA evidence, nor were the cigarette butts found at the scene tested. Not even the murder weapon, the pantyhose still wrapped around Trotter's neck. Nothing. It was as though the prosecutor didn't want to ruin their case with pesky DNA. Swearingen was their guy. He was seen with the victim at the library on Montgomery College, where Trotter was a first-year student, on the day she disappeared, and prosecutors had found pantyhose in his trailer home. Swearingen in the library with pantyhose, I suppose. The prosecutor decided that Swearingen and Trotter left the library together, going back to Swearingen's trailer for some reason. The prosecutor decided that Swearingen and Trotter had left the library together, going back to Swearingen's trailer for some reason. It's unclear how Swearingen supposedly lured her to his home, but however he did it, she realized then his intentions once they arrived and supposedly rejected him, and then Swearingen, angry, murdered her. At least that's the prosecution's version of the day's events. According to Swearingen, he left the college alone, no trotter in tow, to pick up his grandmother for errands. He picked her up at her apartment in Conroe and took her to the post office, then dropped her back off and went home. His grandmother would testify on his behalf at the trial, the jury wouldn't believe the story of a grandmother trying to protect her loving grandson. They would believe the women that shared their own hair-raising experiences with Swearingen, and the evidence the prosecution had carefully crafted to paint Swearingen as a cold-blooded killer. Instead of testing for DNA, the state decided to compare the pantyhose found around the victim's neck to a pair found at the trailer home Swearingen shared with his wife. Keep in mind, this evidence was found after the trailer had already been searched several times before. The last time, without a warrant, a sole officer happened to discover this critical piece of evidence. Perhaps it was left by mistake, or even more chilling, it was a trophy of sorts. The state had a forensic analyst look at the two pair of pantyhose to see if they were similar. And according to the analyst, the two lengths of hose matched to the exclusion of all other pantyhose. However, this same pattern of analysis has come under harsh criticism about how scientifically valid it actually is. If you're familiar with pantyhose or socks even, you realize how strange comparing these two fabrics are. 
Both materials are not solid, tightly knit fabric like shirts or jeans, and instead fairly loosely constructed of thin material, in the case of pantyhose, nylon yarn, and woven by a machine to fit an exact pattern. I don't think it would be unusual to have two pairs of pantyhose look to be a pretty similar match. You might even be able to cut two different sets and get a false match. Perhaps Swearingen's wife and the victim used the same brand of pantyhose, and the quality assurance department was really outstanding. But none of these seemed to have been taken into account. Instead, the forensic analyst looked at the two samples and determined they were indeed a perfect match. As a science major, this testimony rubs me the wrong way. Why didn't they buy a dozen different brands of pantyhose and have the analyst analyze all along with the suspect sample added in the mix? It's simple. The prosecutors needed a match. And it's easy to spot a pattern when it's exactly what you're looking for. The state did not want any DNA tested or DNA tests admitted to the case, blocking the defense team's requests as stalling tactics. In their success or the defense team's failure, it would seal Swearingen's fate as the perpetrator. An entire case and death penalty conviction built around circumstantial evidence. A cigarette butt found at Swearingen's trailer home, well, prosecutors claimed it belonged to Trotter since neither Swearingen nor his wife smoked. Clear evidence she'd been at the trailer. At the trial, prosecutors pointed out that the cigarettes were the same brand that Trotter was known to smoke, and without DNA, the jury must have took it as fact. DNA would later say otherwise, excluding Trotter as the donor. The cigarettes could have been dropped by just about anyone, a friend of Swearingen, a neighbor, or even the postman. It gets worse. Trotter struggled when her attacker strangled her, scratching him and collecting valuable DNA under her nails. I'm sure you know where this is going. The prosecutor was eager to test it to make sure they had the right guy locked away. Hmm, nope, not exactly. They blocked the attempts to test it and succeeded. The DNA was tested years later and determined to belong to an unknown male, excluding Swearingen. Yet, it's still not enough for the state of Texas to change their minds. Even with the overwhelming DNA evidence indicating Swearingen's innocence, the highest court of Texas, the Court of Criminal Appeals, has sided with the state, claiming that circumstantial evidence against Swearingen outweighs any potential DNA evidence in the case, continuing to deny his testing request several times, even though it is his right under state law. Swearingen's new execution date is currently set for November 16, 2017. It's a frightening precedent that Texas court is basically deciding that even with a state law in place to help overturn wrongful convictions, that they can decide whether or not to allow additional evidence, depending on a whim. Even if Swearingen was guilty, it sets a potentially devastating standard for future cases. The court and the state can determine whether or not it feels like your case deserves the benefit of DNA or any additional testing. And with a potentially innocent man about to be executed in Texas, it raises the question, if Swearingen didn't do it, who did? On our next episode, we'll be talking about the tourniquet killer or the strangler as he's otherwise known. 
active in the 80s and 90s along, you guessed it, I-45, the way he's murdered his other victims is eerily similar to the way Trotter was killed, strangled to death by a ligature. If Swearingen truly is innocent, as all the forensic evidence seems to indicate, could this serial killer be the person responsible? Thank you for joining me as we continue to go down the many rabbit holes that are the Texas killing fields. I hope you'll stay tuned for our next installment. Special thanks to Scott Buckley for the music used in this episode. If you're looking for great music to use for free in your next project, visit www.scottbuckley.com.au.